Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every week is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. This morning, we're talking about the Disability Pride Month. It's the month of July, and I'm going to introduce you to the winner of the New York City Teacher of the Year Award, the disability expert, activist, and author of the new book, Loving You Big. She is Leah Whitman Moore, and she's going to share expert insight about what it means to finally address some implicit biases towards those with disabilities. So I know you will need a pencil, pen, piece of paper, or your smartphone, iPad, or whatever you use to take down some valuable information you will hear this morning. Thanks for making us a part of your day, whether you're going out for early run or perhaps a sunrise service. We'll talk about disabilities when New York Sports and Beyond returns on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. My guest this morning is Leah Whitman Moore. She's a former New York City Teacher of the Year, special needs English teacher. She's a disability expert. She's an activist, and she has written a blog. The blog is entitled Loving You Big, and she'll explain why she put this blog together right now. Let's say good morning to Leah Whitman Moore. Leah, welcome to New York Sports and Beyond. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. All right, Leah, first of all, let's start with the with with the stuff other than disability. Congratulations on New York City Teacher of the Year. Take me, how did you find oh, out and what was you. the response? Oh, uh, well, it was it's a, it's a few years that I've held on to this wonderful title and I was um, humbled and surprised and felt like it wasn't real and I've just been really lucky to be raised in schools with amazing principals and administrators and teachers. So it's, it's quite an honor. You know, for our audience who have kids in the schools, let's talk a little bit about the challenge and you know, it firsthand of coming back with kids with, with COVID, the learning has changed and so on and so forth. How, how do we kind of get them caught up and get back to quote normal unquote? Yes. So we've all been in whatever this new normal looks like for us. And for parents with children with special needs, it's been so difficult. A lot of students have faced regression during this time. So from both um, the side of being a teacher and being a parent to a child with significant special needs, the number one thing I can tell parents is to be so explicit about what that transition is going to look like, that we have to redefine and build new schemas for kids because they've probably forgotten what it's going to look like to perhaps go on a bus and walk into the classroom. So in our house, we rely on something called a social story, which can be done. You can make your own. You can use apps for it. But we actually print out all the steps that my daughter would interact with from the moment she wakes up to the time that she greets her teacher and that she can kind of check them off and see what's going to be coming and remembering for all the stakeholders involved that there will be a transition and that we should expect that maybe the first day they're just getting into the building and that that academic piece might come a little bit later. So it's, it's um, going to be a really difficult transition for everybody, but I, I feel confident that from both the educated side and the parent side, we can be successful. Leah, once again, speaking as a teacher, teacher of the year, mm -hmm. uh, what can <laughs> we as parents do to make communication with our teacher, our child's teachers better and, and work together to help our child? 
So I think advocating for your child is the first and foremost. And parents who have had children who have classified learning disabilities have sat through IEP meetings. They've learned how to prioritize what their children need. There are some parents who don't have diagnoses for their children. There are some parents of neurotypical kids, but the lack of being in school has made a lot of anxiety or stress come up for them. So for all all parents involved, knowing exactly what you want to advocate for and communicating that to the school is so important. It doesn't make you a pushy parent. And sometimes you don't know who the teacher is going to be until a few days before the school year starts. And knowing that teachers are preparing social, emotional support as a, in, in addition to the academic. But for example, um, when my child gets really, really nervous and really overwhelmed, she only talks about Disney. So an unfamiliar audience might just think she's making adorable conversation, but really that's a social cue that she needs some help regulating her body. She needs some help getting back into the space. So that could be a really simple thing that I could communicate to her teacher next year to help those transitions. And as that communication opens, keep increasing what I need the teacher to know so that I can get my daughter back into a space where she can learn. And and this is good you know, obviously for children with special needs, but this is also great, uh, Leah, for kids who are, are blessed to be okay. And and so there is a communication because maybe there's something going on at home. Maybe the parents had an argument and the teacher's noticing that there's something different about that child. So that's why I'm so happy you're able to share the communication issue. And, and I think sometimes as parents, we you know, kind of look at teachers as babysitters, but they're, they're really co-parents and, 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 you know, we're on the same team here. Absolutely. And in fact, from both sides, children behave differently in school. So my daughter has no negative behaviors at school. She is a perfect angel. She comes home. I get all of them. And conversely, my own students, I see really strong practice happening in the classroom, really engaged. And when I reach out to their parents, they're like, are you talking about my child? (laughs) So kids behave in different ways based on those expectations that are given to them. So opening up those lines of communication and trusting the other parties involved is a really important piece. And one more thing before we leave this topic and move on to to specifically disabilities is, you know, the other thing that's so important uh, about this, Leah, is the fact that communication teachers understand when parent the more parents are interested the more they reach out you actually kind of subconsciously look more towards what's going on with that child because you the, the parent is in constant contact with you it kind of makes you more involved not that you intentionally look differently at other kids but it, it kind of forces you uh, subconsciously right to really focus on that child when the parent reaches out to you more Yeah, I mean, we are trained to look at a whole child and look beyond just what we're getting from home. And sometimes we have very different pictures of students than their parents might. But reaching out to a parent just gives us another piece of the conversation, something additional text, if you will. So it can't hurt. Um, I know there's a lot of teachers that feel um, inundated by parent email. And as a parent, there's that balancing act of how much do we trust what's happening and letting our children have some voice and agency in their own schools, even the little ones and even kids with disabilities. But it it never hurts just to communicate what you need and, and to trust the professional 
to, to communicate back. Leo Whitman Moore is my guest. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. When New York Sports and Beyond returns, this New York City Teacher of the Year shares how her life changed forever. Next on 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with Leah Whitman Moore, New York City Teacher of the Year, disability expert, activist, and author of Loving You Big. Leah, let's talk about disabilities. This, in New York City, July is Disabilities Month and it's, and it's Disabilities Pride. And we're trying to lock in and focus in on, on our disabled folks and some of the challenges they have. And for you, it's up close and personal, isn't it? It is very much so. I have a daughter with a rare diagnosis. It's called Krita Shah. Uh, one in 50,000 births um, have it, and it has changed my entire life and gotten me onto this path. Leah, take me back when you first found out the challenge that your child was going to have. How did you react to it? And how did you go from, I guess, what many people would just wring their hands and throw their hands up in the air and say, oh my gosh, what am I going to do to being, you know, motivated and active, becoming an activist and learning more about it and, and having a blog and trying to share your information with other people? Yes, it's a really good question and really important. So the diagnosis of my daughter was about nine years ago. She's 10 now. And I, you know, was devastated. You, you go through the grief cycle. And when I began to come out of that cycle, relying on resources, other families who have gone through it before, my own incredible support system, I realized that all the work I had done as an educator was, was really important here because I had really breathed in all these implicit biases about individuals with disabilities, that it was something to mourn, that if I loved her enough, I could love the disability out of her. And with enough resources and enough therapies, we could, quote unquote, fix her. And the more I was engaged in this, not even knowing I was, I was just a tired mother to a child who needed a lot, I realized how problematic that was, that I am educated as a teacher. I teach children with special needs. I don't really believe this, but yet when it came into my own house, that that those biases were, were there. And I realized that it wasn't about me changing my daughter to fit into the world, but needing to do more advocacy work to help the world reshape to fit my daughter, to understand what her leg braces might look like and why she's speaking in sign language and how to be more inclusive and not just kind. And that realization was a very difficult realization, but it's what inspired me to start writing. Um, It inspired me to write my memoir called Loving You Big, which isn't just about my journey with her and her twin brothers, but also how can we go from being a parent making sense of this and how can we change the representation of individuals with disabilities and the conversations we're having. Leah, what is the, and you mentioned her twin brothers, what is the relationship Mm -hmm. like among them? So she has currently their six-year-old little boys. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, it's typical you know, you stepped on my Legos, I'm going to throw them at you. And then on the other hand, um, they're really 
they've built their empathy muscle perhaps a little earlier than they might have. So they understand she isn't going to be able to run with them at the playground. So they slow down and grab her hand and help her. Um, They are starting to ask a lot of questions about why she does what she does or why she doesn't do what they do. So I'd say we're a pretty typical family in the interactions. And also my husband and I are, are really having to practice some really explicit conversations of what does it look like to have this rare disability and what that means for them and the questions that they're going to have to start to filter. So I think that's going to be my next book because I haven't quite mm-hmm. figured it out yet. But it is um, it is one of the challenges, making sure every child is really seen for what each of them need. They sound like, Leah, they're learning empathy at a very early and important age. And it's going to be interesting to follow them to see how they are going to use that or how that will affect them as they interact with other people. And Leah, to find out that some people, you know, the the thin line is, unfortunately, there's going to be some people that may take advantage of their empathy, but it's going to be, you know, nice to see that they're going to have that empathy that we kind of want, wish everybody had. Exactly. And one of the things that I really rely on to do that is the concept of the text that they're seeing. So whether that's books or it's um, television shows or the different news programs or the radios we're listening to, that that in, in education terms, we call it window and mirror text. So there are times where as a window text, they can see their own story reflected. I want them to see pictures and stories of families that might be similar to ours with their ability to process information. And then there's also mirror texts where they could learn about the lives of others. And my boys are learning about people who might be wheelchair bound, for example, or someone who might um, have a seeing eye dog. And they're learning that they're just one part of this bigger puzzle, but it normalizes them by seeing themselves reflected. And that's one of the places where a lot of work can still be done about what texts are we showing to our kids. And that way, when people see my daughter at the playground, she's not being scared at, but they're just coming over and saying hi to her. It becomes more normalized. And, and you know, that's so important, right, for everybody, that because sometimes mm-hmm. as lay people, we want to say something or say hello, but we don't know how. Does that make sense, Leah, that we don't mm-hmm. know how, that we don't know yes. how to approach? And so we'll shy away when we really want to. Or our child may say, and, and that's the beautiful thing about kids, they'll just go. <laughs> they'll just, hi, yes. what's going yes. on? <laughs> so it, it's, yes. it's a challenge. And we've it's experienced a that a lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and lots of families feel differently, whether, you know, some are, some are more private than others. But we we're under the philosophy, if you have a question, come say hi. If you're wondering what she just said and needed it to be repeated, we will help support her in that way. Um, because kids are kids and, and we want we want them to be included. And I see a lot in my practice and in my neighborhood, there's a lot of kindness, but it's not the same as being included. And mm-hmm. that inclusivity is so, so important with the playground equipment that we have, with the different opportunities for sports and the different opportunities for dance class. And there's so much that can be done. And just having conversations even like this to let people who might not have to have this conversation um, be aware of it 
Or also they have a relative or a neighbor who has an intellectual disability or a physical disability or um, an emotional disability to feel more comfortable to have some of these harder conversations. Leah, um, this may not apply to you personally because you have been involved with special needs kids throughout your career, but as you started to write and reach out, were you surprised at how many people your blog touched that were in the same boat? And how important is that for parents uh, of special needs children to find out that they're not alone? I, I am blindsided by it every day. And not only is it helping me because you know, the world of social media, you can put something out there and it looks like everyone's really successful, but behind the scenes, we've had a very difficult day or something new came up in my daughter's life that we weren't prepared for. So knowing that there's this community and the support system that's grateful that I'm trying to put into words, but a lot of people are just thinking in silence, continues to motivate me to do this hard work. And then similarly, I'm hearing from people some of the most beautiful comments of, um, you know, there, there, there's no path for this. Nobody knows what to do when they get these diagnoses. And just to have people showing how messy it is and saying we're a real family, we still go on dates, we still sit on the couch and watch Netflix, we laugh, we cry, we're just a real family. Having these messy conversations helps them feel validated and seen as well. So through the blog and the book, it's just been so rewarding and and necessary. We, so many special needs families feel so isolated. And I would say to anyone listening, if they know someone, to reach out and just send them a text saying, you know, hi, do you need something? Because a lot of times we don't ask. We don't want to feel like we're burdensome or, or difficult because we're just dealing with so many things. So I, I think that community is so integral. That's the voice of Leah Whitman-Moore. She's a New York City Teacher of the Year. She's a disability expert and activist. She's an author. And she's my guest on New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Coming up, the challenges of health care to those with special needs. This is New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, New York. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. Let's conclude my discussion with Leah Whitman-Moore, New York City Teacher of the Year, disability expert, activist, and author. Leah, uh, how important is it not only for folks to realize that they're not alone, but just for the caregivers to be able to speak with somebody who can understand what they're going through and to understand and and have you been through this situation and where's the best place to go buy something or just the, the little community that comes together, right? A hundred percent. We are currently thinking about the beginning of puberty, which no parent wants to think about. And then it's so much more difficult when you talk about a child with significant special needs. So I can go to parents who have already done it, ask them the difficult questions. They tell me exactly what to go buy at what store and it takes out some of that legwork, and I can we can find some humor in it, and it takes off some of the weight on my shoulders, right, as one small example. And sometimes those examples are really life or death um, in a lot of cases, what medicine should we be using, the sleep needs of the children. So no one should be doing this alone, and especially for those of us with rare diagnoses, we end up learning more sometimes than the doctors do mm. because... 
we have to be the advocate. And, you know, I'm, I'm trained as an English teacher. I am not trained as a medical professional. So knowing that there are parents out there who have done that research, I need them as allies so I can go back to the medical professionals and say, this is what's happening in a different state and what can we do here? And especially about her education and her services. It's so necessary. You know, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me was one of your quotes, and I'm going to share it with you. It'll, it'll sound familiar to you, I'm sure. <laughs> As a disability <laughs> expert and activist, I want to create a world for my daughter and millions of Americans that doesn't fault them for their disability. Still quoting you, it's time to stop seeing children and adults as their disability and instead see their disability as the very thing that makes them beautifully unique. Leah, how important is the mental aspect of this? How important is how you look at yourself and how you look at your child? I think it's everything. It's it's what I spoke to earlier about naming that implicit bias. And I mean, this is rooted historically from the eugenics movement when people with with intellectual disabilities were sent to institutions and there was this constant idea that that these individuals are burdens and they're taxing the system and that historically the way people with disabilities have been represented is pitiable or a burden or, or an object of violence and all of those messaging seep in to make real children today get seen in ways that they don't deserve to be seen. And that that when we look at this person first language, we want to say like an individual with a disability because they're people first and that we don't want to reduce anyone to a label of, of what they have. And I think that with the text that we're seeing and the conversations that we're having is so important because even my daughter with her limited understanding sometimes knows when she's not being included. She understands when someone says the seat next to me is taken and she has to go sit somewhere else. And those behaviors in small children are learned somewhere. So this conversation for me is not just about my one child. It's about this larger global issue about how those biases are impacting kids and their self-esteem and the way they're really feeling seen. And I, I think there's just so much work we can keep doing. Leah, while we acknowledge there have been some things and some strides, lots of strides actually to be made that have been made to help uh, disab- the disabled have access to transportation and buildings and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot we can do. Where, where, are some of the, where are some of the places we're lacking right now? Where are some of the things that we're just overlooking? Because we, we tend to figure out the big things, but the small things slip through the cracks. Yeah, and there are so many. I'm glad you acknowledged there are so many incredible movements and ideas happening. There's, there's, right now there's something called, it's a hashtag, Own Voices where people who have the stories to tell are telling it themselves, but they're not letting other people tell their stories for them. And I think that's so important. And, and perhaps it's from my perspective as an English teacher, but I do see a really important start happening in the schools, that a lot of schools um, across the country, in the United States, children with significant needs, have more resources and therefore for the most part they're put into one school building if you perhaps live in a town um, in new york city we have different districts for example right district 75 
And what happens is a lot of children do not have interactions with someone with a disability until perhaps middle school. And that the research shows us that most children learn about disabilities through text that they're reading, stories that they're being told. And then we also know that only 3.4% of literature contains a character with a disability. And sometimes it's not a positive example. So when you put all that data together, we're raising children that don't have exposure. We're We're raising children that are being raised to be kind and let's be nice to everybody, but never actually get to meet anyone, never get to see anybody until their major formative years when a lot of other things are taking over as well. So we're perpetuating this notion that I call sort of um, politely invisible, that no one is going to, most kids aren't going to come right out and bully someone with a disability, but it doesn't mean that they're integrated. It doesn't mean that they're fully connected. And sometimes the interactions become like a college essay checkoff, right? I worked with someone with a disability. I did something kind. I want my community service for it. And we want it to be more authentic. And I really believe that that happens at the younger ages, the way we designate our schools, the texts that the teachers are bringing into the room, and even the conversations happening in the homes. And what we forget is that bullying, even being ignored, is a huge form of bullying. Uh, not being acknowledged yes. is a huge form of bullying. And so while you're, try- you're, you're trying to be kind to them, sometimes you feel like, okay, I'm going to get in trouble. Let me just not say anything. And that's not helping. And so, Leah, because okay. we are a product of our experiences, the more that we can experience, the more comfortable we are around we are around each other. And, and, and sadly to say, Leah, this is not just a situation among kids and, and people with special needs. This is everybody. I mean, the, some of the issues That's that right. we're going on in this country right now, because we are not talking and acknowledging to each other, and we have not experienced what it's like to walk in each other's shoes. And clearly, a child with special needs, that's that's a totally different experience. So the earlier that you can be integrated and be introduced to it, then as it, it becomes normal. It, it's not something that jumps out at you as, oh, okay, wow, what's going on with that person in the wheelchair? It becomes, oh, it's somebody in the wheelchair. Okay. Yes. And the same way that we have all of these difficult conversations that the country is trying to have right now is we have to practice them. We have to, we have to, know when to call someone in. We have to know what we stand for. We have to know what empathy looks like. And we have to practice it before our blood starts to boil, before someone has personally hurt us. And I agree, this is work. This is what I love about my job. I can do this with my students all day long, but it's work that everybody can always be practicing. Absolutely. How can we, what can we do to get rid of some of the stereotypes we see? Uh, with, with, with folks who have special needs. Uh, Leah, what, what are some of the things we can do to, to you know, not just jump to conclusions or, or just make, make people with special needs feel so uncomfortable? Yeah, I think people listening have sort of three frameworks to think under. And there's um, a practitioner named Zachary Casey who talks about this work for equity and justice. But I, I find it really helpful to answer that very difficult question. And the first is this personal level of work. 
that we can do this personally, examine our own implicit biases. It's the work that I had to do when I was faced with this um, diagnosis. I had to check myself. What is it that I've been carrying? Where did that come from? What do I want to do about that? I want to think about my exposure. What am I watching? What am I reading? Who am I talking to? And really doing that work on a personal level. And then that's going to impact my conversations, my the way I'm raising my children, the way I'm talking to my neighbors. But on the next level, there's a local level. And thinking about what communities am I a part of that I can impact? And are there places where I have any position of power? And based on the roles that we have in our lives, power can exist for everyone somewhere. So it might be just in our home. It might be at our work. It might be in our community. Um, in my town, there is an incredible father who recognized that the children weren't um, children with disabilities weren't accessing sports in the right way mm. and started the Challenger League, where he partners neurotypical children with children with special needs to play several of the sports that are being played in town. It changed the game for my community. And then the third level is the structural piece, where we have less power independently but we might be able to look at some of those larger systems that regulate our society. So maybe we are contacting local representatives or state representatives, making sure that our playgrounds are accessible. And in, in, in our example, they might be accessible, but, it's, um, but then they're broken, right? So that it's mm. being upkept and that we, have, we can do this as members of the community, but we can also do this as allies. So if you're listening and this is a part of your story, then you're doing this work anyway to get your family out in the community. But if it isn't a part of your story, you can be a member of the ally team to help on a personal, local, or structural level as well. Now, for that piece, uh, Lee, is there a website that people can get information about that you that you have handy? So I cited Zachary Casey, who's um, the Theory for Equity and Justice. Mm-hmm. He's written articles about it, but it's not a specific website. Got you. Um, that was just my own synthesis of it. Understood. But I could direct them to my website and write more Please. about that, which is lovingyoubig. Absolutely. And that is that dot com? Lovingyoubig.com, yeah. Lovingyoubig.com. Yep. Lovingyoubig.com. Which is the mm-hmm. name of your blog, the name of your book. And this is Leah Whitman Moore. She's a disability expert. Yeah, that's right. It's your life. <laughs> Loving you more. <laughs> Leah Whitman Moore is my guest, as you heard. She is a blogger. She is an author. She is a disability expert, activist. And she is also a New York City Teacher of the Year. L- Leah, we, it's obvious, right? Um, medical care has gone up. We know it as we just go for routine checkups and, you know, situations where we're trying to keep ourselves healthy. Uh, I would think for special needs, the, the, the prices are just exorbitant. What, what are some of the uh, challenges in healthcare in, in trying to get the correct medical attention for special needs uh, folks that are, that, that are going through this in addition to protecting themselves against COVID-19? Yes. I don't know if you could feel my eyes rolling while you asked that question, but that is the source of my stress. So Mm -hmm. keeping um, children safe, especially if they have pre-existing conditions um, and becoming even more isolated, um, refers back to the earlier conversation we had about just reaching out to members in your community, reaching out within the community, because there is so much isolation. I am not going to take my daughter places she doesn't need to go right now because she is more susceptible. 
And then furthermore, there are state programs, federal programs that provide aid. The paperwork and the extensive years of waiting lists to navigate those systems are quite difficult. But also there are advocacy groups and it is their job to help families navigate these systems so that resources are available based on the age of your child. Early intervention is available. Um, speaking out to advocates for your IEP meeting so that your child is getting the therapies that they might need, that it doesn't have to come out of pocket because for a lot of families, they can't afford to give the extra feeding therapy or OTPT speech, for example. So one of the things that helps that is um, the community reaching out to other community members. Has anyone seen this grant? Has anyone learned more about this federal program? Here's how I filled out the paperwork. Come over and I will help you fill it out. So really connecting to each other. And then also people um, who are not a part of that community. I mean, it's something as simple as someone babysitting my kids so I can fill out some more paperwork is actually really helpful for me. Because the amount of time I'm on the insurance on the phone with the insurance company takes a really long time, so it's it is a problem, and there are solutions, and it requires a lot of patience, a lot of organization, and a lot of asking for help. How can it be made easier? What are some of the things through your experience and and through uh, your experiences and folks like you as through your conversations that? Is there a certain should, should insurance companies have a certain department that deals directly with special needs? Is what can be done to make your life and the lives of, of our special needs uh, citizens le- less hectic? I mean, yes. In an ideal world, when I call the insurance company, I am talking to someone who knows my case. I don't have to start from scratch. Um, there is definitely perhaps a branch that knows some of the language that I'm using. Um, there could be more funding on a federal level to supplement the cost of um, all the therapies that, that children require. And I think, um, I also think it's so important that grants are available for accessing the community. Um, my husband and I are also both theater teachers, accessing the arts, accessing sports, mm-hmm. um, cooking, that that these are opportunities that don't become the priority, whereas another kid down the street might be involved in nine things. We're spending any funds that we have on just her needs to learn to walk. So if there were more opportunities that didn't come out of pocket for a child to be a full, well-rounded child and accessing what they love and having that choice, I think it would add to more happy children, happy parents, and help some of those biases that we've been talking about as well. Yeah, and and make your life less stressful because it's already stressful yes. enough. <laughs> it already is. That would be wonderful. Yes. And and with that, I think the mental health support for the for the parents and the siblings as well that that should be an additional piece. How do we support neurotypical siblings? How do we support parents and normalize the mental health conversation that come around with raising children that you didn't expect to be raising. You didn't have a roadmap for this. Parenting is hard for everybody, but it becomes extra difficult in some of these cases. So I think that would be another place to use more support as well. And then, Leah, the real challenge is as your special needs child becomes a teenager and adult, and how do you care for them and that care as you age and they age? 
how does that impact and what uh, caretaking uh, situations as we have for dementia patients and cancer patients and other illnesses, how does that move into uh, the life of, of the special needs adult now and how much does is that going to cost? That's right. And what options are available? So that first night I came home with her diagnosis, um, as I've written, I sort of mourned an entire life. I, I erased like a, a wedding in my brain and replaced it with, will she live with us? How long can I live? Uh, will she live in a home? You know, how can I make myself immortal? These are all the questions that happen. And my child is a tiny baby in my arms. So as I'm, as she's getting older, and as I work with my own students, I teach a class called Adaptive Theater for students with significant disabilities, and learning what their steps are after they age out of high school at 21, and knowing how can they be um, connected to society and and having jobs and what all of that looks like is such an important conversation so that we're not overwhelmed as, as parents navigating the system when we're not quite ready for it, but we know that there are supports in place. And there are a lot of supports in place. I think we just, um, I mean, it just wouldn't hurt to have more. I mean, just think of it, ladies and gentlemen, like this. You're, you, the, the same issues that you wonder about for your kids. Uh, who are they going to marry? How are they going to live? What, what, what are they going to do with their life? What, what jobs are they going to have? How are they going to sustain themselves? Do, do I trust them? You know, to do this is what the, the special needs parenting community are going through times a thousand, <laughs> times mm-hmm. a thousand. And, and who's That's going great. to take care of, who's going to take care of my baby after they grow mm-hmm. up to the point that I can't take care of them anymore. It is, it is as stressful a thought process as you could have Leah. Yes, it, it's what keeps my husband and I awake at night um, because you want you, the, the normal trajectory is that you raise your child to be self-sufficient and go off into the world and make their lives for themselves. And when you're raising a child that you know isn't going to do that, I mean, people talk about empty nesting. I'm like, what? I will never know what that looks like. Yes, mm-hmm. my child might live somewhere else, but that. I can't imagine what that would feel like now, you know, while she's only 10. But yes, that is that empathy piece. And it and it doesn't have to be sad. It doesn't have to be, oh, that poor family that has this child. And that's right now a little bit what it still is because of all that conversation we've had before about this long-term legacy. But if we can think of it as an empowering way, then that would help everybody involved. Well, the best part of this conversation, Leah Whitman Moore, is because of people like you, your husband, and other folks who are bringing attention and being an advocate for the special needs population that it's going to change. And the fact that we have a month of July to celebrate this and to continue to bring awareness to it and wake up people and let people understand that there are things that we can do to make these changes it means that things will get better and and that's the best part. So let me take this opportunity to thank you for joining us and thank you for what you're doing because you're filling an invaluable void and there are so many people who have read your blog and have written back to you that you are a lifesaver to them. So thank you for sharing that and thank you for what you do. Thank you. And I I have to thank you for for creating a platform where this conversation can be normalized and can happen is is part of the of a part of the battle in the conversation. So I am so grateful to have some time to do so. 
And Leah, don't you don't have to wait till next July to come back and join us. Let's update with what's going on with uh, <laughs> your, your role, your challenges, and, and the things that are going on. That sounds good. Thank you. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. We'll join you this evening during the week on ESPN New York Tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my all-world, incredibly talented, the legendary Ray Santiago, and, of course, the coach, Anthony Pusick. I'm Larry Hardesty. Up next, the conversation continues on 98.7 ESPN New York.